While fleeing Apaches, this gentleman from Virginia found a strangely shimmering cave. When he entered it, he discovered his body had somehow split in two. One form lay dead on the cave floor, while the other was mystically transported through time and space to the planet Mars. Stan Lee presents Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter, Warlord of Mars. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 69, March of the Dead, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue 13, cover date, June 1978. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel Cosmic Comics. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I'm a comic book fan, a comic book reader, a comic book writer, a comic book collector. And right now I'm reading through a bunch of comics that I am really having a pretty good time reading. Uh, This tends to be my monthly comic book reading, other than Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., those comics and the related comics to the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I do for Welcome to Level 7 over at welcomelevel7.com where we podcast about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that stuff with the movies and everything. This is what I'm reading every month. I'm reading Star Wars from 1978. I'm reading John Carter, Warlord of Mars from 1978. I'm reading Godzilla, Man from Atlantis, all those things. I'm reading them, and a lot of them are new to me as I'm reading them. And this this is like my – this is my – Wednesday. This is my new comics day is when I sit down to read these classic sci-fi and not so classic sci-fi <laughs> comics. And, you know, I'm I'm enjoying myself. And, uh, you know, I, I've started a while ago. I'm continuing. Uh, I'm reading John Carter, Warlord of Mars for this one. And like I said, it's been a fun ride, especially in the John Carter Warlord of Mars realm. So, without any further ado, let's get on with this segment of my travel through June 1978 cover date and take a look at John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I've been kind of rounding off my regular reading, my in-depth reading with John Carter, Warlord of Mars since almost the beginning, almost every month for one reason and one reason only. I'm starting the month with Star Wars because... That's why I'm doing this podcast, and I end with John Carter because I almost always end with a very exciting, fun, and interesting read. So the question is, for John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 13, am I continuing the trend? And the answer is probably not going to be a surprise because John Carter, Warlord of Mars has stopped surprising me. How has it stopped surprising me? By giving me things that I enjoy and I'm no longer like, wow, this was so good. I can't believe how good this is. Wow. This is so great. I can't believe how great this is. Instead, I'm reading it and thinking, wow, this is still great. Cool. I'm glad. Uh, This issue, uh, according to Mike's amazing world 
of comics, which you can find at uh, dcindexes.com. That's my source for almost all the information I get about release dates and that kind of thing. This issue cover date June 1978. The on-sale date was March 28th, 1978. The cover price was 35 cents, and the page count, including ads and all that, 32. The editor is Marv Wolfman. The writer is Marv Wolfman. The penciler is Carmine Infantino. The inker, Rudy Nebrez. Letterer, John Costanza. And colorist, Michelle Wolfman. And so we begin this story, 17 pages of story, 35 cents. That is two pages per penny that you would have spent on this from the shelf if you had gotten into your time machine and gone back in time. That is one penny for the cover. I still can't get over the value here. And what's funny about it to me is, you know, you see complaints in the letters pages and you see them prepping people for the, the price hikes that come after you know in years to come and but the the value here two pennies per page for that story the question is is it worth it was it worth firing up the time machine going back in time reading all these comics that i just read star wars man from atlantis all that and john carter warlord of mars well for me of course my time machine is a hardcover omnibus volume if you want to get literal about things and, you know, step away from the fun metaphor that, you know, the, the comic book time machine. But uh, I can't believe the steal that this book was. Now, the original cover price of this book was, I believe, $100. And then I got it for a mere $25. $25 for this hardcover volume that collects all of the John Carter Warlord of Mars issues. Uh, when it comes right down to it, I, don't, I haven't even counted the issues, at least recent enough that I could remember. But um, flipping here, well, that's the annual, so that doesn't count. But there are three annuals. So 31, 31 issues, if you include the three annuals. And I, I paid 25 bucks. I mean, that's less than a dollar per issue. So... Was it worth it for me to jump into this time machine? You betcha. This is something that I will go back and read. Now, I'm reading one issue at a time and not reading ahead as I go along. But when I'm done with this, because this will be done before this podcast series is done, unless something happens where something happens, unforeseeable. And, of course, as we are time traveling into the future, unforeseeable things happen all the time. But if nothing unforeseeable happens and I continue going past when I finish with the coverage of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, I'm going to be rereading this book. I mean, this is probably some of the best $25 of comic book money I've ever spent. So anyway, let's get on to talking about this issue. Now, the last issue of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, uh, we left uh, John Carter in a pretty pickle. Uh, He was searching for Sola. Sola is Tars Tarkas's daughter. She'd been lost in the desert for weeks, and they didn't know because nobody knew that she was actually going to where she was going. She was going to visit her father. The people who knew she was going there didn't know she didn't get there, and her father didn't know she was coming. So she's been lost in the desert for a very long time. And so John Carter and Tars Tarkas decide to go catch, go find her, find out what happened to her. Unfortunately, what happened to her Well, we're going to find out exactly what, but as they were looking, they found one building 
that she could have been in. And it was just this great big giant cathedral of skulls and bones. And as they entered it, it was seemingly alive and it was teeming with skeleton warriors. And then there was one beastly zombie looking thing that took control of Tarstarkus. And so they're fighting skeletons and they're very scared, haunted house type scared thing. And uh, this is before Alien. But I'm reminded of, you know, just the living of the 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 organic look to some of the ships uh, in Alien for for the the, well, (laughs) the aliens, the 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 dead alien from the beginning. I'm reminded of that kind of thing. I'm reminded of H.R. Giger's uh, other art. Uh, where you have bones constructing the walls and the machines and stuff like that. So there's a little bit of that here uh, in this place. And there's skeleton warriors as well, and they're fighting. And uh, Tars Tarkas, though, comes across the beastly-looking zombie thing, and it takes control of Tars Tarkas. And so now John Carter is basically fighting the building, fighting the skeleton warriors that inhabit the building, and also fighting his best friend, who is under mind control uh, from a beastly, hairy, decomposing zombie thing. We don't know what that thing is. We just know he's up to no good, especially when he zaps Tars Tarkas with eye eye beams. So that's where we left John. And obviously, you know, he is being held then by skeleton hands that are coming out of a wall and Tars Tarkas is about to strike a killing blow. And obviously, uh, John Carter was not killed by the the killing blow. We, We know he's not going to be. The question is how he's going to get out of it. And... This is probably the weakest moment of the issue is how does he get out of it by trying harder to get away from those skeleton hands and he gets out and uh, he fights. And, you know, the trying harder thing, it's a it's a wrestling thing. It's a Godzilla thing. It's a sci fi fantasy television trope, a cartoon trope where the bad guys got you down and you just try harder and then you defeat the bad guy. And that's what they use here. The, The cliffhanger from last issue didn't even need to happen the the resolution here in this issue is kind of a an anticlimax. It doesn't matter though. We ended with a uh, just a a, a rip roaring uh, cliffhanger from last issue. If, even if the artwork wasn't that satisfying, and for this issue we step into it and we just have to keep the story moving. And when I first read it, I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, that's kind of an anticlimax." But when I see where the issue takes us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the issue takes us into some places that I like John Carter taking me. So he's not killed. He gets away. He battles through skeletons. He battles through the building. He fights Tars Tarkas a couple more times, finally knocks him unconscious. And then he finally finds Sola, who's in this pit, uh, just being kept prisoner. And he gets her out of there and they escape. He escapes with Tars Tarkas and Sola while the undead-looking monster man guy looks on. So while Tars Tarkas recovers under medical care with uh, John Carter and, and Deja Thoris and Sola worrying about him, while he's recovering, we get our first view of the monster man beast that really puts him in context, and that is he is leading an army of skeleton warriors, and he's getting ready to lead them on a long march to attack the people of helium because today is the day helium will fall or maybe in a couple days. Cause it's a long, long march to get to where uh, they want to go, which is the city where John Carter is right now. So John Carter wants to examine and he wants to take a look at that cathedral thing. And he and his best friend, Cantos Khan, his other best friend is 
his Martian best friend. Well, I guess they're all Martians, but the Redskin Martian best friend. They take a skimmer to go back to the fortress, but before they arrive, they find an army of skeletons. And they swoop down and they try and take some of them out with their ship, but the skeletons just hang on and they end up crashing. They fight. They're both knocked unconscious. And this is where we get into some really awful stuff, like some really awful stuff uh, for me anyway, just thinking about uh, what this what, what the implications of of what uh, the the weird zombie man creature beast thing does to them. Uh, they're under, they're unconscious and they're kept alive for some reason, but they are tied up and dragged on their back through the rocky, sandy Martian desert. This is brutal. I mean, rug burns bother me. When I was a kid, falling on my bike on the concrete bothered me. It, it hurts. It really, really hurts. It's not fun. They're being dragged miles and miles and miles and miles. Uh, and then they're not wearing a lot of clothes. You know, they're wearing loincloths and ornate, you know, flowy robe thingies that, that hang from their belt or whatever. But they just have sashes like over their chest, if that. And this is not looking like a very comfortable type of travel method to use. Uh, clearly, this is not... Uh, what the tour guides would say, if you want to see Mars, you definitely need to take the skeleton warrior led by a zombie-looking man-beast who have tied you up by your hands and are now dragging you on your back to see the sights. That's just not the way you're going to do it. So they're dragged on their backs through the stony sand. They arrive at the city. The city is under siege now by these skeleton warriors and John Carter wakes up, he breaks his bonds, he goes to fight, and he confronts the beastly zombie thing guy, and it's now time for backstory. So they fight, the beast guy uses his power to slam John Carter into a wall and hold him there uh, with basically psychic bonds. And so now we want to find out who is this guy and why is he doing what he's doing? Well, who is this guy? His name is Zuvin D'Arc. And I say D'Arc because there's an apostrophe in there so it's it's not zuvin dark it's zuvin dark he's a centuries old evil guy who made a bond with the dark gods who was sentenced to be buried in a pit in the desert to die but because of his bond with the dark gods you know everyone else died first he just stayed alive he lived through it and it's Spent eight, the ages underneath the desert. Spent the ages alive, buried alive, and rotting. So his flesh, I mean, he's not rotting as, as quickly as it would, you know, if it was done in real time. But even so, it's not good for him. But uh, Tars Darkus's daughter, when she arrived and came over where he was living, she gave him the boost of power he needed to survive. And the basically the palace of bones rose up from the desert because of Sola kind of giving him, I guess, like a psychic boost or something like that that he needed and uh, to bring these other dead to life. And I actually wonder if the intention here, and maybe I glossed over this and didn't see this, uh, 
or maybe it's just an implication, but I wonder, is the intention that these bones of these dead people, are they actually the civilization or the remains of the civilization that, that, that cursed him to be put into this pit in the first place? Now, they meant it as an execution, but it turned into a curse of immortality because of the dark gods. And so now is he bringing them to life now to, to go and attack? Well, it's the dead versus the living. And I'm going to go ahead and turn to that last page and, and just read the last bit of the monologue because the lettering here, I don't talk about lettering a lot, although I do love lettering. I, I do lettering myself, but he wants to topple the nation. He wants to destroy helium. And that's where, where he, he finishes. Uh, he, the building that John Carter is smashed into he causes that to crumble at least that's what it looks like and he says now you know little fool tonight is the night helium dies and for the most part now this guy's nude throughout the whole thing and that's kind of gross but uh if you think about it there's nothing seen um i'm assuming it's not because there's nothing there it's just good shading uh plenty of shadows in the right places for him to not have to wear any tatters of clothing. All of the images of him tend to have a human uh, form to it and, and the, the right um, proportions of a, of a human just with rotting flesh dripping from his, his hands as he moves around and no lips really to speak of lots of gnarled gangly teeth. Um, but uh, the the gnarled, gangly teeth and all that, it's, it's a good effect. But that last image of him, it's kind of a weird one. And the, the perspective is odd and adds it just makes him look more monstrous. And I can't decide if it's actually intentional and a good thing or not. But for the most part, the artwork here is really, really good. Uh, I don't have any complaints about the artwork. In fact, when he's giving his backstory, there's some interesting storytelling perspective that they use. And I've used this before in some of my scripts where you have time moving, but the character within the panel is in the same spot. And they do that where he's he's uh, getting arrested after he talks about how he made a bond with the dark gods. And then they show him in front of a tribunal with his hands. His hands are up when he's arrested and then his hands are in front of him. So this is all from the back. His hands are in front of him, presumably in bonds, and then they show him uh, being covered up by um, people, who, masons or whatever, being covered up in these gigantic boulder brick kind of things. And his hands are out and to the side as, as if he's resigning himself to this fate. And it's a nice effect. The character doesn't move from the center of the panel. It's the same perspective of each shot. But the this just different placement. And so I don't know if that was a choice of the artist or if that was something that Marv Wolfman thought would be really, really neat. Or if Marv Wolfman just, you know, writing Marvel style, just wrote, um, let's show the passage of time. He's being arrested. He's in front of the tribunal. He's being buried alive. And whether or not it was intentional and on whose part it was intentional. I mean, I know it was intentional, but uh, whoever's part it was, where whatever step of the process it came from. It's very, very effective. And and most of the artwork in this issue is very, very effective. Lots of skeletons fighting lots of, you know, very Ray, Ray Harryhausen kind of thing, making me think of, uh, you know, the, the Sinbad movie, but yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Good, good stuff. Again, 
um, well worth it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not even quite halfway through the volume that I'm holding, uh, but these issues, the ones I've read already, if this is your kind of thing, man, uh, or woman, I guess, <laughs> go for it. This is, this is good, good stuff. Um, so a couple other things I wanted to touch on is, uh, first of all, the walking army of dead. <laughs> this in the seventies could not have existed in a movie setting. And this is one of those things where we talk about, or we used to really talk about how, well, why would you want to work in comics uh, frequently in interviews? When people have talked to me about the, the comic books I've been writing, they'd ask me, why do you want to work in comics and not in film? And my answer usually would be, um, in my head, it was, well, I, I, I would like to work in, in film. But my answer to them was usually something along the lines of, you know, there's things you can do in comics that you can't do in film. That's not as true anymore, although it still costs bundles of money to make those effects happen that you couldn't do uh, back in the 70s or without, you know, spending bundles of money for these special, you know, practical effects or stop motion animation like I was talking about with Ray Harryhausen and the the, the skeletons that, that, uh, that Sinbad battles. But in this case, um, they could never have done this as a movie. Never in a million years. Uh, some of these things are just wild and just – there's so much animation to it. There's a lot – there's a, just a life to the page as swords slash through bones and as, you know, skeletons are, you know, just falling from the sky from their skimmer and that kind of thing. It's great, great stuff. Uh, something else that I've already talked about, um, the, the artistic writing here, but something else kind of getting into the writing is this kind of a funny little bit of uh, talk about faith and prayer and religion. And, you know, as, as John Carter knocks out Tars Tarkas, he, uh, he talks about there's, there's a, this way there's a chance we may all survive this madness, providing I find the master behind the blasphemy. And referring to the, the bones in this kind of castle of bone. And then in the captioning, he says, I'm not a religious man, though I never scorn those who feel they must turn to some nebulous God for prayer. But at moments like this, I oftentimes wish I had a strong belief in a supreme deity who avenged evil and rewarded good. For certainly Tars Tarkas would then rise from his mindless coma and willingly face the dread unknown beside me. Now, he says all of that. And the first thing that happens when he finds Sola is, Sola, is that you in the darkness? John Carter? Then my prayers are answered. And so it's just kind of a, a nice little play there where, you know, this is a guy. And I, I don't understand, you know, you have the Marvel Universe and there are clearly gods and there is a personification of eternity. There is a personification of death. There's a personification of time. And with all of that, it doesn't make sense for characters. Now, this is John Carter. This is not that. Uh, but he's witnessed so much supernatural. But he's kind of, you know, well, I, I don't believe in that stuff or I don't believe in a higher power. And I guess it kind of goes down to that, um, you know, those things that happen are against me. And, you know, I guess Conan's prayer where, you know, <laughs> listen to my prayer, Crom or whatever. Um I'm talking about the, from the movie, but you know, if, if you're there and you hear me and you answer my prayer, great. If you don't, well then whatever. Um, or to hell with you, I guess is what he says. But 
I, I can't imagine Conan just being, hey, oh, whatever, you know. But anyway, um, poor, poor characterizations of Conan aside, uh, this John Carter comic continues a string of wild, fun, and interesting sci-fi pulp fantasy stories. And again, once again, rounding off my reading with something that was a positive experience. And with John Carter, even when it hasn't been the most positive compared to other John Carter comics, it's always been a positive experience. So um, there is no copy here about the next issue, uh, but the uh, the cover for the next issue promises, just like he said, uh, you know, Zar, Zar, Zuvin Dark, Zuvin Dark, sorry, says tonight is the night helium dies. The cover of the next issue tells us this is the day helium died. And so issue 14, who knows what's going to happen. I'm not sure if this is the end of the story arc or if we are still in the middle of this story. We will find out next time. As for the next segment of the coverage of this month, it'll be Ben's Bullpen Bulletin, as usual, which rounds off, I guess, again, the reading, although I'm not doing it as in-depth of a of coverage with, with that, uh, with Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. So, until next time, I just have to say thank you for listening, and I would love any feedback that anyone might, might leave. Um, uh, I get the impression that this isn't the most listened to podcast in the world. And that's 100% okay. I'm doing this because it's fun. Um, You know, interaction is also fun, but if I'm just doing this and reading these and just kind of doing this journal, as I think about what I've been reading, that's fun. That's fine. But um, for right now, I I just do want to say, even if you don't write in, even if you don't send any feedback in, thank you so much for listening and Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Ben's Bullpen Bulletin for June 1978, where we'll take a look at the ads and copy inside the issues of this month and also take a look at Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man issue number three. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other 
the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic batteries to turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com.